Ever have a conversation with someone and come up with all kinds of advice for what they ought to do or think or try? So why is it when it comes to ourselves and our own lives, we can struggle to think of a single thing? I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder. Let's face it, we are all great idea people when it comes to someone else. It's moving forward with those ideas and where we run into all the trouble. Over the next hour, we're going to talk to a variety of people who have taken action on their thoughts and ended up making a pretty big difference in their lives. I am anxious to learn from them, Billy. We're going to meet a woman whose name is Miss Stephanie, folks, and she will convince you that it's never too late. At the age of 70, somebody posted a video of her hip-hop dancing online, and that took the internet by storm. And it's given her a platform to share a very empowering message. We're going to talk a lot about purpose today and how important it is for all of us, including hearing from a guy considered to be a founding father in the purpose movement. Also, you'll hear from perhaps the greatest archer since William Tell, who will explain how his sport can change your life. But first, a brain-bending investigation into why some of us never change our minds and others, well, we do it in an instant. Ordinary people living extraordinary lives, this is Growing Bolder. As people, wouldn't you say we're all pretty much the same? Then how can a bunch of us look at the same issue and see something so totally different? Gun control, vaccinations, abortions, you know, we could not possibly be any farther apart. I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Bolder. In this segment, man, it is going to blow your mind because we are going to try to understand how we make up those minds in the first place, specifically why some people will never change theirs, yet others will change in a heartbeat. Our guest is fascinating. We've had him on before. He's got a great podcast called You Are Not So Smart, and his latest book is How Minds Change, the the surprising science of belief, opinion, and persuasion. David McCraney, it is great to have you back. This is a this was a pretty big uh, bite you have taken off uh, this time. <laughs> I decided I really wanted to go for it. This is about five years of work and hundreds and hundreds of interviews and more more than hundreds of articles and books on the ground reporting, being in the places where people are are either resistant to change or they recently left from Westboro to conspiratorial communities to scientists who study persuasion and people who do persuasion. It's a, quite a project. Yeah, it, it is a big chunk because uh, people automatically go to, hey, wait a minute, this is great because I'll learn how to get other people to change their minds. But we really have to understand ourselves first. Yeah, the, the, all the persuasion stuff doesn't even appear in the book till about page 200 uh, because I want to build you up to the, the title is how minds change. I want you to understand how minds change, whether it's through learning experience or something like propaganda, marketing, advertising, just living your life and reading a book. But also it does arrive via persuasion. And um, I try to make it clear that persuasion is not coercion or manipulation, not the way that I'm talking about it. I'm talking about an attempt for one person to have a conversation with another person in which both people might realize that they have more to offer than they thought and also more to learn than they thought so that they both move in one direction or the other. And I, um, I really advocate for that. But I think that what's incredible is that there are some hardcore techniques that actually deliver the results in that regard. 
Well, we'll we'll talk about those in a minute. But it seems, David, that from the outside, this this is easy, right? It, you disagree with me. Obviously, <laughs> you don't have the facts. I'll just tell you the facts, and you'll change your mind. And there we go. Oh man, don't we all think that? Of course, that's what they think too, right? Uh, the reason we think that is because we don't. I don't think feel that certainty or confidence in an idea is an emotional state. But that's what the great neuroscientist Robert Burden explained to me that you. Uh, you feel certain as something more akin to hunger than anything else. It happens to you. And then it happens to you in a way that makes it feel like, oh, it's obviously true that this is a fact. But what actually is happening is you're looking at all the evidence available to you all over the internet and other places from sources you trust. And if it pings that certainty in you, then you say, oh, yes, this supports how I feel about this. This justifies my thoughts, feelings, and attitudes, and so on. And then when you meet someone who sees things differently, it feels natural to take those things that has have served as justification tools for you and then dump them on the other person and say, see, naturally, you should just see things my way. Look at this. And then, then of course, they throw a bunch of facts on you and you're sending links to YouTube and all, and nothing happens. And the reason nothing happens is because you're not opening up a space. You're not non-judgmentally listening to the other person in a very curious, compassionate and empathetic way that gets to the reasoning that led to picking those facts instead of others that led to that interpretation. And you're sort of facing off instead of getting shoulder to shoulder and shoulder to shoulder, you can collaborate and try to explore a mystery together, which is, I wonder why we disagree about this. And that's the only way you can actually get someone to change their own mind, which is that's how all persuasion works. The other person realizes they can, they might, they ought to change their mind. And you can encourage that. And you can do that just through asking the right questions and taking the right sort of approach in the conversation space. So David, isn't it, doesn't it kind of come down to if, if you, every time you stick your head up out of the hole, somebody throws a rock and hits you in it, you're, <laughs> you're not going to stick your head out of the hole. You, you mentioned we've got the internet, we've got politics as sophisticated as it is these days. We've got decades of the perfection of advertising in the media. Mm-hmm. Are we the most, uh, are we the most brainwashed or are we the most attempted manipulated people in the history of humanity? I think that we are having more, we're, we're, we're confronted with more information than ever in, in the history of our species, for sure. In the sense that there always have been people who have been privileged to engage in this sort of stuff and, you know, maybe wear togas and walk around in nice columned buildings. But now we're all in it. Like uh, everyone's been invited to the conversation, which means we're all arguing with each other. And there's arguments everywhere. We're all debating interpretations. We're all talking about what ought to be the way to feel about something. We are all trying to say this is the problem that we should solve before that problem. So it's the information ecosystem has become more complex than ever in the history of humanity. That's for, that's for sure. But I argue in the book that this is great. <laughs> like the, I, Arguing is how we change things. Arguing is how we improve things. It's just the context in which we're engaging in those arguments. It doesn't match very closely to the context in which we get the most out of those arguments. And that's something that we should work on. And then on the other side of it is this, this, this uh, information ecosystem really, really uh, promotes a sense of um, if you have an anxiety or you have some sort of value and you find other people that share it, it's very easy to create communities around those things. And once you're in a community, there's all these psychological levers that come into play that put belonging above accuracy, belonging above anything. 
And a lot of our most intractable disputes come from the fact that we feel threatened in that space. Our identity is under threat. Our inclusion is under threat. And we'll avoid that more than anything. And uh, like there's a scientist in the book, uh, Brooke Harrington, she's a sociologist. She said that uh, the E equals MC square of social science is that the fear of social death is greater than the fear of physical death. So we will even stick to a incorrect belief or a harmful attitude if it be, if it means reputation is at stake, even if our own mortality is on the line. And that's something we have to reckon with if we want to move forward. You talked about the art of the argument, and, and it seems like, well, we figure out what truth is by sitting down and having a debate. But you point out where conversation, conversation is so much more important and so much more powerful if, if our goal is to come to some sort of enlightenment level, which isn't really <laughs> yeah. always the case. Yeah. Like debates, the only person who wins a debate is the person who doesn't learn anything, is the, the person who doesn't change their mind, who doesn't, doesn't see the world in a new way. The, the problem is that we frame a lot of things as debates. Like we often, we might as well just get behind some lecterns and invite an audience. And it kind of feels that way on Facebook or Twitter. Sometimes you feel, you feel the presence of the audience who's going to chime in on what you're saying. And so you start speaking in a way that is more concerned with that than it is with learning anything or, or trying to find a compromise that will solve the, the problem that you're talking about or reach the goal that you share with the other person, or it will honor the values that you may share with the other party. One of the Examples that has been coming to mind recently is uh, because this happened to me was uh, just recently is if you if you ever go to a movie with with someone that you know and that you trust and is your friend and you like love the movie you just love it you like can't wait to get out and tell them about it and then when you get out of the theater you're like uh and before it even comes out of your mouth they're like ah oh, that was the worst thing I've ever seen is what the other person said <laughs> and but you don't disown them right you don't you don't feel like your identity is under threat at that moment but when you say I loved it like you are you've already established a certain dynamic where you're going to be shoulder to shoulder with this person and kind of under, try to just talk about the movie and you will move a little bit toward them. They'll move a little bit towards you because you get something out of that kind of disagreement. You get something out of that kind of framing. And I argue that we can apply a similar framing to just about anything, even with people who hate us, even with people who disagree with us in such a way that they have a very us versus them attitude. It's just that you have to, you have to take the initiative and, turn it into that kind of dynamic on their behalf. And that's where all the, the value comes from. Again, fascinating point. Uh, but most of the time we take these on as adversarial and it becomes, you know, we love sports. We, we're very competitive people. It becomes more about me winning is more important than me being right. Mm -hmm. Because what's it's, at stake is your, is your identity. It feels that way. Like it feels like you're going to be seen as, an, as, a, as a fool or as an untrustworthy person. You're starting to pull back into this very ancient social primate stuff. And at some level, you might be feeling, I'm, if I do change my mind about this, what are they going to think? What is everybody going to think? What kind of shame and ostracism is on the line here? But you can talk to someone, even when those are, are the stakes in their mind, in a way where those fears never come forward. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about in the book. Yeah, you know what? Uh, I want to pull you. You know, the, the, our program is called Growing Bolder, and we try to look at things through the filter of 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 getting older and, and how life changes. And one of the things that we've come to understand is what the mind believes, the body embraces. So, if when we picture ourselves older, you know, if we see somebody frail or sick or alone, you know, that kind of makes a big difference than if we see someone who's uh, running a 5K, you know, who's involved in charitable causes and who's making a difference. So. 
how do we handle our own negative thoughts, especially about aging? Oh, well, that's great. Well, I, I would take aging on like I would anything else. Like, let's, let's talk about it like I would a flat earth or something. Let's talk about it like I would uh, 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 gun control. This is just a topic that has evidence that goes for or against it. There's hypotheses in it. There's, there's propositions within it. There are claims within it. The, all of this stuff can be done through self-talk. First of all, there's this great thought experiment that um, the great uh, Will Storr gave to me. He's one of my friends who writes books similar to mine. He said, uh, ask yourself, are you right about everything? And then if the answer is no, then ask, what is it that you're wrong about? And then if you answer, I don't know, ask yourself, how would I go about figuring out what it is that I'm wrong about? And that can be applied to a specific to a specific topic, if we talk about aging, like, do I think I'm right about everything when it comes to aging? And what am I wrong about? And how come I don't know what I'm wrong about? And go seek that disconfirmation of some of the things that you may be believing. And you can also use some of the persuasion techniques from the book in this regard. You can take something like a, take something very specific within your claim, within your this this topic, and ask how strongly you believe it uh, on a scale from zero to ten. And when you have a solid number, then ask. Why does that number feel right to me? And then what reasons am I using to justify that level of confidence and just really get into the processing? And you'll notice that you may have never deeply considered where this is coming from. And there may be motivating factors that have nothing to do with the truth. There could be motivating factors that have all these triggers and cues that you're concerned about. And it's a way to give yourself the power to actually change your own mind that I think is essential to being a, a person, especially in an environment like now, you have so many different people telling you so many different things. Uh, again, you're right on there, David. I mean, if you, if you, you get a sore back every time you ride your bike, you think, well, I'm not going to ride my bike anymore <laughs> if we're getting in our 50s, 60s or higher, when really maybe if we trained a little bit differently, it could be the perfect thing for us. So, so that's an external thing. How about, how, how about internally? Is it, is it more difficult for us to change our minds as we get older? You know, do we dig into the trench or do we see things more clearly, maybe have a little less ego involved when we come to make our decisions? Is there truth to the concept of wisdom from our elders? I think it's like meditation. So you, you can get better at it. You can get better at changing your mind. You can get better at being more open to, to being wrong about things. You can, be, you can get better at being more open to adapting and evolving as you, as you grow by starting small, working on it and having sort of a practice about it. The, it is true. Like the, as a child, you're learning everything there is to know about the world and everything is new. Everything is novel. Everything is ambiguous and uncertain. And we, as you grow older, you start to develop certainties. Dis, you disambiguate things and you start to develop a very complex model of reality. And we tend to err on the side of what got us here because it got us here. And we walk sort of a tightrope where if you change your mind when you shouldn't, that makes you wrong. But if you don't change your mind when you should, that keeps you wrong. And we kind of try to ease ourselves in the direction of what we already think, feel, and believe. So that's at the baseline. Just you know, if a person who meditates or tries to meditate, at first, it's you're really bad at it, but you get a little something out of it and you get better at it over time. And then eventually just walking out in the world, you can use some of the abilities that you gain through that practice just, uh, just in your daily life. You can also engage in this disconfirmatory curiosity frame where it feels good to learn something new. And when you learn something new, it almost requires you to something inside of you has to flip a little bit. The more you engage in that process, the better you get at it. And it will keep you from getting in that uh, frame that I believe you're, you're alluding to, <laughs> where you set in your ways and nothing will ever change your mind. Uh, 
it's uh, there's a way that you can develop a practice to try to keep yourself from being that stodgy old person in your in your later years. Well, that's good. So that, so there we, we can take care of ourselves as individuals. But but what about as a society? It seems we're we're at a pretty tough spot right now, pulling sure. from opposite sides where we couldn't be more polar uh, polarized and we're getting worse. So after all this, after these five years or more of thinking about this topic, are you optimistic? How, how is all this going to going to shake out? I'm so optimistic. Like like I feel, I'm realizing this is sort of a punk uh attitude and i didn't realize it until sort of engaging with people and talking about it uh yeah we always figure it out it's just that we are in this sort of a three or four generation spread here of um there's never been a more uh complex information ecosystem than we're within and it requires uh, the tom stafford gave me something that i think gives me the incredible hope he's a cognitive uh, psychologist he said that when that germs were always a problem with human beings, especially in groups. It was always a problem. But then we built cities and it became a very difficult existential crisis for our species. And to solve that at the level of the society, we had to develop sanitation. At the level of the individual, you had to develop best practices like washing your hands. He said that misinformation and tribalism and all these other things those have always been a problem for human beings, but it wasn't until we had this grand information architecture that we find ourselves within social media and so on, that that became an existential crisis. So we're going to have to learn in his words, the generational equivalent of washing our hands. And that's something we're a transitional uh, three or four generation spread here who will be the first people to develop those best practices for the people that come after. And I'm very hopeful that we're going to do that. We, we will one day you're saying be thankful to our political leaders and to some of the people who have led us down these polarizing paths. We'll say, if it wasn't for you, we never would have got here. Yeah, we had to solve the, that problem. And now that that's out of the way, we can do a better job going forward. It's, it's, I really am in that camp. Before we let you go, I, I, you know, it's such a big and complicated topic. What, what is, what's a takeaway? What, what do you hope we leave this interview thinking about, remembering, or understanding? I would hope that you... Uh, I want to give you that hope and the optimism, but not just the big scale, but the small scale as well. As well, I uh, all the great changes that ever took place through history came through persistence, and the people who wanted to change the world knew that the conditions had to be just right, and that means that you have to keep striking, keep striking at the status quo if you want to change it, and pass that hammer down if if your time comes to end in that fight. And at the individual level, I want people to th- to realize that the the people in their lives they feel are unreachable and you're frustrated about it. That frustration should be directed more at yourself because the it's like saying um, it's like trying to use a ladder to reach the moon and realizing the, that you can't reach it with a ladder, thinking that it's unreachable. But the method that you're using isn't the method you'd need to use. And that's true with all the people in our, in our lives and our families who, who feels like the conflict is unavoidable. We'll never reach out to them. There just are better methods about, of going about it. And it's going to have to be on your side that the change starts taking place. You always find a way to uh, make us feel better, uh, to oh, empower us, to kind of leave us with a, with a path forward. And that's one of the reasons we love having you on. Again, the book is called How Minds Change. And you'll find more information about that and his other mind-expanding books at davidmccraney.com. David, thank you so much and good luck. Uh, 
Up next, a guy who always does his best to hit that bullseye, and what he's created could help you hit the bullseye of life. That's next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Caring Transitions, a senior move resource to help families ease the stress of life's transitions, offering relocation, home cleanouts, and the resale of everyday household items. Locations near you at caringtransitions.com. You're listening to Growing Boulder, and if you're going to talk to somebody about a subject, shouldn't you talk to the best? Well, you're going to meet a guy who's the Wayne Gretzky, the Stephen Hawking. This guy is the Elvis Presley of archery, if you get the idea how good he is. One of the greatest of all time. Now, Mark had him as a guest on his fantastic podcast, Fountain of Youth, and this guy's name is Rod Menser. And he explained why he believes in archery, it's really for everybody. And that no matter what obstacles or challenges you face in life, archery teaches you how to overcome. I was watching the gold medal match in the Para World Championships in Dubai. Matt Stutzman, the armless archer from the United States, was shooting against another armless archer, actually, that was inspired by Matt from Russia uh, for the gold medal match. And uh, Matt won the world championship. He won the gold medal. Uh, to, to be honest, it chokes me up because, you know, watching that match and, and I, I know how much that meant to Matt and how hard he's worked and how incredible his story is. This guy shoots a bow and arrow with his feet. You know, I mean, and he's inspired so many people to try and do that. And, and you know, he has worked so hard and um, watching it, I was so nervous. And I'm sorry, guys, but I, I, there was no way I was going to break away. <laughs> so I was so pumped. And, and you, I don't know if you could hear the emotion in my, uh, in my voice, but really, really excited for uh, Team USA and for Matt. And, you know, it's just a really good thing for our sport. No, I'm glad that you kept us waiting, Rod. I mean, um, that's what this program is all about, passion. I mean, that's how we introduced it. And it it really is incredible because you you just mentioned that. And it's so much bigger than archery because I think it says to all of us, you know, what's your excuse? Yeah, exactly. I can't imagine what this has done for him, what your sport has done for him, you know, just in terms of his self-worth, his confidence. I mean, everything. It's got to be an incredible story. Absolutely. If you get a chance, you know, um, look him up and, and see, you know, Matt Stutzman, the armless archer. It's a phenomenal story from his childhood on. He was born with no arms that he can do anything with his feet. It is the most amazing thing. And he's got a personality that is electric. Like I said, it's very inspirational, but that is our sport. Anybody can do it. That's the beauty of it. And at any age, it's a phenomenal sport. Love it to death. It has done so many great things for me in my lifetime. And I encourage everybody, take that little passion. I guarantee you, I hear from everybody I ever run into when they see U.S. US Airtree on my shirt or or whatever. They'll all say, oh, I did that in camp or I did that in school. And it was so fun and it was neat. You know, they, they, (laughs) everybody had an experience with it. And it was very rarely negative, except they all say, oh, I hit my my arm, you know, with the string. But it's a great sport. So, you know, go back to your passion and, and, and try something that you enjoyed as a kid. Try something that you've never tried. 
one of my great dear friends, one of my best friends, he was playing a lot of golf and doing a lot of things, but he wanted something different. He saw archery somewhere. I don't recall exactly where, but he was 62 years old and he decided he was going to come over and to our archery club. And he stood there at the doorway watching our uh, target archery league and seeing all the people shooting. And he was just kind of like, wow, you know, and Went over, introduced myself, and next thing you know, a couple of years later, he was our state champion in the master's class. Mm. And, you know, but just passion. And he he just, oh, he, he loved it. Once he started, he just loved it. And it kept him in great shape. You know, walking back and forth, getting the arrow, shooting the bow, it, it helped keep him in shape. And he really, it kind of filled that void in his life outside of his professional thing of a great hobby where you can meet a lot more people and where nobody really cared about your skill set when you started. Like, who cares if you hit the middle or not? It's all about just the process and the sport. It's wonderful. I want to dig a little deeper into that in just a moment, but, but, but let me back up for just a second for two things. Number one, folks, mental note, Armless Archer. You may not remember the name that Rod just shared with us, but go to Google or go to YouTube. Go to YouTube and put in Armless Archer and you can see the video that he's talking yeah. about. And before we go any further, let me ask you about the Hunger Games effect. Obviously, <laughs> if archery wasn't fun and cool, it wouldn't yeah. make much difference. But it is true that your sport has had a significant increase in interest connected to that film, isn't it? Absolutely. And then, to be honest, Brave, yeah, the movie Brave, that actually added to it. And we saw this incredible influx of young ladies, you know, guys too, but young ladies get into the sport. Matter of fact, for USA Archery, we're made up about a third of our membership is 18 and under. Mm. And we're almost 50-50 boys and girls. And that is, you know, it's, it's great. It used to be a sport that was probably 75% males, you know. And when those, those two movies came out and after that had this huge influx and now we're seeing the, the young ladies show up. But it did bring a lot more people back into the sport. And it was it was great. Love it. No, it's great. And let me comment on that because we probably got a lot of grandparents listening out there. And, and you mentioned that archery is is really good for young kids. Yeah. And I was one of those young kids that had a bow and arrow. You know, it was one of those things where your mom was always yelling at you. You're going to break something or you're going to put your eye out. Right. I have to tell you, we did break a lot of stuff, uh, but we never got injured. And, and Rod, I was surprised to, to read a report in which the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission said that archery is, in fact, one of the safest sports in the country for children. Less injuries than golf and soccer and baseball and tennis. I mean, it, it, it is safe, isn't it? It is. It really is. When you learn to shoot, especially if you if you start with a program and you explore archery or or wherever, if you're getting some instruction at a camp, most of the instructors have been certified by USA Archery and, be, you know, they learn, you know, to set things up safely and to teach people that. And people are very respectful of archery equipment and it is really, really safe. I can't stress it enough. And the statistics are out there. Anybody that wants to look it up. Yeah. Some people worry like, oh, my gosh, it's a weapon. It's like, no, it's it's a fun athletic tool <laughs> and it's uh, it can be done, you know, people do it in their basement, they do it in their, you know, house, down the hallway, of course, be careful of doors and stuff like that. Again, do it safe. But there's parks, I mean, everywhere you you can you can find a place to shoot a bow and, and, and do it safely. It's wonderful. Yeah, you know, we're talking with Rod Menser, who's the CEO of USA Archery. And, and Rod, I've always, you know, honestly been envious of, of people like you. We talk a lot about passion. And 
you know, uh, some people find it early and some people don't. And, and what a blessing it is not only to find it early, but to be able to construct a life around your passion. I mean, yeah. we've talked to a lot of CEOs on this program and, you know, they're all smart like you. They're obviously in their position for a reason, but 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 very few have the passion that we can hear for, for, for uh, you. Yeah. How did, how did how did you come to this sport? When did you realize that it, it was, in fact, a passion that runs as deep as it does? Well, for me, I was it was actually when I was 15, just before I turned 16, I took a, a bike ride. You know, prior to that, I was a kid who spent a lot of time in the woods and playing in creeks. And I make little stick bows. You know, I, I cut a branch or cut a small tree and then take some fishing string and make make a little bow and would shoot that around. Uh, it worked for about a, a week or so, and then it'd dry out too much and it'd crack. And then I'd go make another one, you know? Um, but it was just fun. Um, to me, it was just one of those things that was just kind of fun to do. And one day I took a bike ride with my neighbor and uh, we went in a place in town that I had never been to before. And as we were pedaling along, uh, came across the building and it said, Janelle Archery Lanes and Pro Shop. And I was like, Oh my gosh, it's an archery place. We got to stop. So we stopped and walked inside. I saw all of these bows on the wall and I was just like, oh my gosh, you know, this is so cool. You know, pedaled home as fast as I could and, and you know, just told my mom, hey, they got this great layaway program. You got to let me get a bow, get a bow. You know, I can practice and shoot as much as I want there. I just can't take it home until it's paid for. And she said, okay, you know, um, you can do it, but you got to pay for it yourself. And and I was fine with that. I didn't mind. It took me two years to pay off the bow uh, with my $2 a week allowance, but it worked. <laughs> In 2008, you win the World Archery Field Championships. And Ron, please don't yeah. go too deep or too technical for us now, because I don't <laughs> think this is the right form for that. But 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 talk to us, if you will. I don't know much about it. I've read about recurve bows. I know there's standard yeah. bows. I know there's crossbows. Yeah. What are the different categories that you compete in, and what did you win? So there's a compound bow, which is what I would consider to be the modern bow. It's got some cams on it and some cables and strings. So when you draw it back, once you get it all the way back, you're only holding about half the weight of the bow. So, you know, as far as the poundage of the draw. Um, so it's really easy to shoot, um, just very simple. You have a recurve bow and that's where it, it looks more like a traditional, what I call a traditional bow, something you'd see in the movies with the exception it has curved limb tips and that's where you get the, the term recurve. And that is the bow that is used in the Olympic Games. So the recurve bow, you shoot it with your fingers and they have a lot of other restrictions. It's just pure archery. It's it's fantastic. Incredible skill set that you have to have for that. And and then you have like um, bare bow. And bare bow just means you have a bow without a sight. And it could be a long bow. It could be a recurve. And there's people that shoot bare bow with a compound. And that's where a lot of people now get started because it's simple. It's just a bow and some arrows. That's all you need to get started. And uh, so there's a lot of people um, right now, Barebow is very popular and it's growing and it's because it's so easy and affordable. So people really enjoy it and um, have a great time with it. So those are the styles. For me, uh, I started with a compound. I switched in, in college to a recurve bow because um, I wanted to try for the Olympic Games. I was a, a college All-American in archery my senior year in, in school. And then after that, I was invited out to Olympic Training Center for a couple of years. And I trained with some folks for, you know, the games. And uh, unfortunately, I did not make the uh, that team, but uh, that's okay. And finally had to start my career. And I actually retired from competitive archery for eight years because I, you know, I need to pay my student loans back and get my career going. And then I just had this yearning and this 
passion to get back into it. And it just so happened that I was, I was able to move back to Midwest and, and uh, start shooting again. And I did that and I won my uh, first world championship three years after I started shooting again with a compound bow. Um, it was the IFA, so it was a, a field uh, world championship. And field is kind of, think of it as a golf course in the woods. So you got all different targets at different distances and you kind of walk through like it's a golf course and you shoot that. So uphill, downhill, and it's it's just an incredible amount of fun. I just love it. And every course is different. Um, so that's another great thing about it. And um, set some IFA world records there and then shot indoor and I made an indoor world archery uh, championship team. And with my teammates, we uh, we won the gold medal for the United States. And that was in 2004 in Denmark and set the world record. So that was great. And then uh, in 2008, went back to field world championship and won the field world championship in Wales, Great Britain. So it was, you know, that just, it was fun. It was pouring rain, mud, hills, most difficult shooting I ever did, but yet the most fun I ever had, just shooting a bow. That's old school. That's going back to 16th century England right there, isn't it? (laughs) <laughs> it was. It was. It was fantastic. And the worse the conditions were for me, the more fun I was having. You know, because it was a great story. It was like, check this out. This is going to make the greatest story when I get home. You know, <laughs> people are going to believe the conditions we're shooting under. And I shot like it was sunny and calm. Good for you. The scores that I shot were phenomenal, and and I was fortunate enough to run away with the world championship when it was, uh, you know, highlight of my life because of how challenging it was. It was it was fantastic. So I've been very fortunate. Tell me about 3D shooting because you know I think a, yes. lot, of, a lot of people think you're putting on you know 3D goggles, but you're actually shooting no. at, at 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 targets that aren't foam targets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're shooting at foam targets again. It's in the woods. It's kind of like a you know similar to a golf course again, where you've got lanes and they'll they'll have foam animals, so different kind of animals. Sometimes they'll have you know dinosaurs even or whatever happens to be and <laughs> they have different rings on those animals so, so it'll be a little ring that's inscribed in the foam and you'll shoot at those and it's different scoring rings it's just fun it's just being in the woods and then you have field which is my passion which is similar only thing you're shooting at a target and then of course indoor archery indoor archery is the most popular because for a lot of the country you know 8 months of the year we're we're stuck in it uh, inside at 20 yards you know shooting at targets but it's it's fun people have passion uh, with it literally it's one of these things folks something for everybody anyone uh disabled young old indoor outdoor many different flavors and styles and and you know Rod we've done stories on archers in their 90s yeah and you know we're, we're not really doing this show or creating content for other people in their 90s we love it when they see it and they're inspired by it but it's it's really just to kind of send the message to younger adults that it's never yeah. too late you can always learn i think one of the cool things about archery easy for me to say because i've never really done it is that it's got to be as good for you mentally as it is physically it's uh you know anything as we age that requires focus and attention has got to be good it truly is for everybody. We have so many seniors. We call our, our main class seniors. So it's really the master's mm-hmm. class. So that master's is 50 and above. That's us, you know, and and they have more fun than anybody on the entire field of play at all times. They are laughing and joking and they got all little things that they do and that they shoot for and and nobody cares how good you are. They all welcome you. They will give you tips if you want them. But they, the biggest thing is enjoying each other's company. 
And you're absolutely right. You, you know, when you're you're out there, you're concentrating. It helps you cognitively to, to really stay sharp. You're having to do different things, the dexterity with your fingers and, and doing that stuff, walking, so you're getting the exercise there. But it truly is a sport where at any age, at any ability, you, you may not have been an athlete at all in anything, maybe chess or checkers, or maybe you like playing rummy and come and shoot a bow. You can. We will show you how, <laughs> and you will have fun doing it. So you don't have to be this greatest athlete in super great shape in order to participate. You just have to be there. You just have to show up. That's really it. I told you he was a great advocate. And, <laughs> and it's easy to be when you have that kind of passion. It really is great. Uh, you know, Rod, give us a final life lesson, if you will, from, you know, from the book yeah. of Rod Metzer, from all you've learned about life in general. It doesn't have to be any, anything to do with competitive archery. It can. But, you know, what no. have you learned about you know, passion and making a difference and, and having fun and, and making it work. Mark, I think you said it right in the beginning where it's like, find your passion, find the things that actually interest you. Like you think that is really, whether it's volunteering to do something to help people, there's so many things that you can do. Don't look at it as, oh, I don't have time to do that. Take the time to do it. Find that passion and then just do something in it. Uh, trust me, it'll help your heart. It will, it will drive you. It will put a smile on your face every single time you do it. it. It's just something where if you sit back and you just watch and you think you just can't, you know, unfortunately, you're going to lose out on a lot of smiles. And you, you just need to literally find it. I don't care what it is. Playing badminton, you know, shuffleboard, pickleball, you know, anything you want to do. If it is playing cards, great. Get some buddies together. Do something. But enjoy yourself and, and find a passion, whether it's a sport or car or people or helping people, volunteering. There's so much need and there's so many opportunity out there. Do it. Jump into it. Try it. And then just don't stop. If you put a smile on your face, don't stop. There's always a way to continue to do it. Just never stop. Some inspiring words of wisdom from the CEO of USA Archery, one of the greatest archers ever, and someone who truly understands the importance of never giving in to limitations, but instead learning ways to work around them, and as a result, living life to the fullest. Don't forget, there is much more to find on my podcast, Fountain of Youth. Up next, he's a pioneer of the global purpose movement. Sounds like a big job, doesn't it? Find out what he believes is essential for all of us to live to the fullest as we age. That's next on Growing Boulder. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingbolder.com slash podcasts. You know, people always talk about the power of purpose, about its importance to us as we age. 
And everybody agrees we have got to have a reason for being, a reason to get up in the morning. And nobody knows more about purpose than Richard Leiter. He's a pioneer in the global purpose movement. He did a PBS special on it. He's written like a dozen books about it. And when Mark asked him about it, he explained that he believes there are several aspects of purpose that are most important to make it work. Richard, you talk about purpose being a verb. Uh, Explain that. Why does purpose need action? Well, purpose is always beyond yourself. And uh, there are three stages to purpose. First is it's about you. It's about your gifts, your passions, your values. Then it's about us. Hopefully you mature at certain points in life. And it's not just about you. We call that self-absorption or being a narcissist if it continues throughout life to be just about you. But at some point, hopefully earlier, it's about connection with others and and making a difference in the lives of, of, of others. And ultimately, it's about all of us. People who are really purposeful see that they can bring purpose to life all day, every day. And uh, 24-7, you know, there's big P purpose and there's little P purpose. And little P purpose is about bringing action to the, to the world. And so uh, a verb means it's about action. It's about that one small thing to make a difference in the lives of others. And out of that comes vitality and really a, a, a sense of fulfillment. And there's a big distinction there between happiness and fulfillment. Happiness is on the outside. It's something that we can buy. It's something we can experience in certain ways, which is great. But fulfillment comes to connect with others and to somehow feel like we are uh, making a difference in the lives of others. That is long-term fulfillment. Richard Leiter is one smart man explaining that purpose is really all about connecting with others. It's about being involved. And of course, socializing makes a big difference. It's like filling your tank with fuel on the road to living your best life. Boy, I love that, Mark. Filling your tank with fuel. It makes so much sense because that's exactly what it did for Miss Stephanie. Do you remember her? She's a 70-year-old who does hip-hop exercise classes. Now, somebody put a video of that on TikTok And now there's over 30 million views. What is she doing? Well, our Amy Sweezy had to find out what makes her tick. Four, three, two, up. Your Instagram fan page says that you want to inspire the world to dance like no one is watching. Exactly. What does that mean? Well, you know, I think um, a lot of people have a hang-up about movement and dance. And I always tell people, can you clap your hands to music? Can you clap on beat? I said, then you can dance. Then you can dance. But a lot of people, they're afraid to try. Uh, When you say the word dance, it's like, oh my goodness, I can't do that. But yes, you can. You can. What would you say inspires you to dance now? I think everybody has to have a passion in their life. You know, there's a saying... A life without passion is a life half-lived, and it's always been my passion. And I think you have to pursue those passions. And of course, as you mature, uh, as you season, your ability level changes, you know. You just can't do the things that you were used to do, but that should never stop you. Never stop you from doing the thing that you love to do. Deja Renee founded the club that Stephanie dances with in Central Florida. She believes dance is the secret to living a longer life. 
I saw a light in Miss Stephanie that just cannot be dimmed. It cannot be hidden. It cannot be. It's, it's, it's a gift that should be shared um, around the world. That's why Deja created an Instagram account for Miss Stephanie. In a matter of weeks, the videos went viral with millions of views. I walked in the door one day and Kiki said, she probably doesn't even know. And I said, know what? And she said, honey, you went viral. And I said, oh, okay, that's nice. But it's, it's not the reason that I dance. Why do you think it went viral? Why that video? Well, uh, honestly, this is the reason. It's because I'm a senior. You don't usually see someone my age doing like hip hop and moving like that. I think it was her age first. And now people are looking past that because they're like, Miss Stephanie, she's 73 years old, and she's out dancing the fitness instructor and everyone else in the room. You see her, and she dances with her entire body. She dances with her face. She dances with emotions. She literally inspires all of us how, you know, age is just a number. I love that Miss Stephanie is so humble. As all these videos are going viral and getting 5 million, 2 million hits. All the purple hearts. Keep them coming, y'all. Keep the purple hearts coming. She's thankful for it, but Miss Stephanie still shows up and put on the show because that's what she wants to do. She's a beautiful soul. And she told me that it doesn't matter about your size. It doesn't matter your age. Come inside this room, give a full performance, and as long as that makes you feel good, that's all that matters. So I'm truly thankful that she's teaching me at the age of 32 to live my life full out and stop being so scared. <laughs> I've had young ladies who are like much younger than me. They said, well, I would go and do that if I, if I lost weight or I did this. I said, no. I said, go and do it now. Find the thing that, that really floats your boat and just do it. Yeah, don't, don't let anybody naysay you because you never know until you try. You know, Bill, when you say a 70-year-old doing hip-hop, it's easy to not really get it until you see the video. And when you do see the video of Miss Stephanie, you understand why it went viral. When you see her doing her thing, the smile on her face, the energy that she exudes, well, you want to get up and do some of it yourself. It's when we are actually inspired to try something, that's when the magic takes place. It's great that Miss Stephanie found her passion, even better that she's helping the rest of us find ours. Up next, I'm going to tell you what's on my mind. And Bill, I didn't tell our producer because I know she wouldn't like it, but we're going to do it anyways. This is Growing Boulder. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures.
Time now for a segment called On My Mind with Mark Middleton. And Mark, when it comes to aging, we've been conditioned to see it in a pretty negative light. You're about helping us see the real light, the truth of what may lie ahead for us all. Mark, what is on your mind today? I read a uh, report of a study this weekend, Bill, that that I've been thinking a lot about. And and as I said, our producer Jill's not going to like this because it's a little bit dark uh, but but the moral is really, really good. Now, I should say that I know producer Jill pretty well, and uh, she does not like rats at all, but she's probably not going to get this, uh, not going to like this story. Uh, it goes back to 1950, and a guy by the name of Kurt Richter, who was a professor at Johns Hopkins, did a famous drowning experiment with rats. Uh, he took a group, about a dozen wild rats, and put them in a big glass jar. It was big enough that they couldn't crawl out, uh, they, they couldn't climb up the sides, and he sat there and watched them drown. And it took about 15 minutes before they gave up uh, and they drowned. He then did the experiment again, put the rats back in the water, new rats of course, uh, and just as they gave up, just when they were ready to drown, again at about 15 minutes he plucked them out, he dried them off, he let them rest for just a few minutes, and he put them back in for round two. So I ask you, Bill Schaefer, how long do you think they lasted in round two? And remember that uh, they just were in the water to exhaustion a few minutes before, and they drowned at 15 minutes in the previous experiment. I think they made it more than 15 minutes because in their minds, they had the idea that if they hung in there long enough, the water would drain. You're ruining my... <laughs> Is that right? No, you're, you are right. You're a smart guy. A lot of people would think, well, five minutes or 10 minutes because they were exhausted. They lasted an average of 60 hours. What? His results showed that saving the rats just before they were about to drown enabled them to swim approximately 240 times longer the next time. And the conclusion that was drawn, of course, is that because the rats believed that they would eventually be rescued, they pushed their bodies far beyond what they thought was possible. And of course, rats and human beings are widely different. But still, in in the Annals of positive psychology, this story is repeated often, and they've done similar studies with with people. They didn't drown them, but they gave them the reason to believe that there was hope. And I share this because I think as we age, we all feel like we're drowning to some extent. We all feel like no one's going to save us. This is why it's so important, folks, to reach out and help others, to encourage others, and to let them know that more is possible. What a great way to end the program, Mark, with drowning rats that still (laughs) have hope. No, I'd really does make a lot of sense and and that is going to do it for us right now but folks growing bolder never stops especially if you sign up to become an insider get free access to our weekly e-newsletter our daily bold start inspirational message and so much more at growingbolder.com thanks for listening and we'll see you again very soon the growing bolder radio show is a production of growing bolder llc all rights reserved This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member, you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day.